This is where product taste and good strategy comes in. Is like, okay, if we're going to expand off the wedge, how does the wedge product, whatever the first one is, really help unlock the door to the second? One of my favorite ones was Square Capital. That started off the unique insight that like, hey, we kind of have a pretty good view into the revenue of a business. So that really puts us into a position to be able to lend in a way that like banks, small business lending division doesn't have that same level of insight. Just talking to customers, we knew cash flow was a problem, but the uniqueness of the data and the insight there that, that kind of led to success on that product. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm really excited to be joined by Mike Cherry, who is the Chief Product Officer at Gusto. We start the conversation by paging back to Mike's seven years at Square, where he was the company's head of product and led development for over 10 products, including Square's flagship point of sale app. Mike begins by exploring some of the nuances for developing products for an SMB audience from narrowing the ICP to debating the merits of a vertical versus horizontal approach. Gusto and Square share aspects of a similar origin story. Both started out as wedge products that they were able to turn into a robust suite. Plenty of other startups have had their sights set on doing just that, but struggling mightily for a variety of reasons. So we spent a large chunk of the conversation with Mike unpacking this thorny transition from single to multi-product. This opens up a really interesting discussion about the Three Horizons framework for balancing big bets with core product work and how leaders should think about resource allocation as they walk this tightrope. We end by diving into some more nuanced product topics that are applicable to just about any startup out there, from creating a culture of risk-taking, encouraging experimentation, and how to develop exquisite product taste and intuition across the org. I really enjoyed this interview with Mike and an inside look at how two of the most successful companies today develop new products. And now, onto the conversation. One interesting place to start is I think to talk a little bit about building products specifically in the context of small businesses as the primary user. And I was interested, given you've done it in different roles across different companies for a decent portion of your career, are there specific things you've figured out as it relates to building products specifically for SMBs that might be different than building for any other type of potential user? Yeah, I think when you work in technology, it takes a while sometimes to find like what part of technology you're really passionate about. And I've, I've worked in a variety of tech settings throughout my career. And I was so excited to start at Square and like working working with small businesses back in 2012 or so. Um, just because I've always loved small businesses, like it's been a part of my life. My grandfather owned a bowling alley. I, I grew up going there every weekend. Um, I just think they have a valuable, you know, 
part of making a good community. So as a customer, it's a great customer to serve. And I and I really felt more at home at Square than ever before serving that customer. And there's a few reasons. I think the first was, boy, if you get it right, they love it. You know, you're working at sort of the core of helping them with their livelihood and with something that to them is, you know, kind of make or break for their life and for their for their well-being. And so there's a lot of heat on the customer when they sort of respond to like, How's it going? You know, if you did it good, you hear a lot of love and praise. If you did it bad, boy, you're going to hear that. And and I really appreciated that. There wasn't much ambivalence to how how the product works with small businesses. They're very direct on like, this is crushing us or it's like super helpful. So, so that was one. I think a second, you know, really treating a lot of small businesses. I mean, at Square, we work with super micro businesses. The majority of Square businesses are, are solopreneurs. They're individuals, individual sellers. And, you know, the last decade or so, I think the company has really made a, a successful march up market. So we've got a lot of larger businesses now. But, you know, back when I was first starting there, I think it was north of 70% were like individuals. And so we really took with that insight, like a consumer grade, uh, design aesthetic and consumer level, sort of consumer product level approach to building traditional business software. And so I think one of the insights that Square had early on was like, hey, a lot of this business software that's out there is built for larger businesses. I mean, very few are building, you know, for the two person shop, for the mom and pop shop, for the corner store. And boy, you know, when you look at what they have to do to glue all this business software together, it's hard. And these interfaces are not easy. And there's no, you know, you might expect an account manager to walk you through how to do it. That doesn't happen when you're kind of building self-serve software for SMB. So, I mean, we really put a lot of focus, Gusto similar in this respect, on ease of use, making it simple, treating the customer the same way you might if you're building a consumer product and like, you know, doing a lot of walkthroughs, like not a lot of clutter on the on the page, things that help people find success quickly and easily. So there was this one slide from when Square went public that I just loved in the investor deck where it showed sort of like how small businesses do a bunch of their activities using either existing software or offline tools. And it was just like super hard and complicated. And then Square, how Square had sort of approached all those with an ease of use mindset. When you think about building software for small businesses, how precise does the ICP need to be? In the world of enterprise software, you may divide the world by thousand person companies versus 5,000 or companies that use a specific type of infrastructure. When you're building for small businesses and or sole proprietors, what's the level of specificity that you tend to try to build for? Is a three-person bakery different than a nine-person bakery? In the early days of a, of a new business, a lot of the problems look similar. You know, how do, I, how do I take payments? How do I hire somebody? How do I just start initial payroll? If I want to offer benefits, how do, how do I do that? These are shared jobs that that almost every business has. And I think when I, when I look at what we're doing with Gusto and really focusing on how to build great teams, a lot of those jobs are shared across industry, across team size. The form that they take and the way that they work needs to adjust a bit depending on how large the company is and what industry there is. There's, there's minor tweaks that are certainly there, no doubt. Um, but a lot of the jobs are very, very, very shared. Um, it's square because we did a, a lot more sort of front of house and helping folks with taking payment and being in front of the customer. The jobs diverged quite a bit sort of by industry. And that was something that became really clear to us, you know, around 2015, 2014, where we had the core square point of sale, which was beloved on, on tons of coffee counter shop, you know, countertops, retail shops, it's all, all over the place. But the the reality was that as businesses started to get more sophisticated and get larger, 
you know, that point of sale no longer really worked. So a full service restaurant that's got multiple locations, has a kitchen, has a front front of house, the core square point of sale didn't work for that. And that environment is much different than a multi-location retailer or a franchise or a stadium. Um, I mean, you can imagine all the places where this takes different shape. And so at Square, what we what we did and what the, the company's still doing is, is came up with a vertical strategy where we had, okay, we've got our, our base square point of sale out of the box, you know, works for works for most industries with simple needs. And as you start to get more advanced and more complex needs, we had Square for Restaurants, Square for Retail, and then Appointments, uh, which I led, which was kind of the, the kind of focusing on service businesses, businesses that run off appointment, run off a schedule, need online booking, so on and so forth. And so we sort of took the, the core jobs that are very similar across all industries and then extended them with industry-specific needs so that we could so we could have a form-fitting solution to the specific needs of those industries. And that was a pretty big strategic shift for Square and allowed us, I think, to actually be able to, to meet the needs of more sophisticated businesses, understanding that like with front of house, uh, a lot of times the, the way that the things operate are much different. What did that process look like? H- how did you figure out that was the right way to organize at that juncture? To be honest, it was one of the most exciting and fun times of, of my career when we were going through that because we were, you know, Square had done extraordinarily well down market. Square was starting to see signs of having businesses that, um, you know, as they grew, just kind of outgrew Square. And boy, that was a, a hard nut to swallow. And you're like, man, we, we served this company so well. And now they're just at a stage where they're leaving. And so this, they're showing up in churn numbers and stuff like this for, for companies as they got bigger. And when you started to unpack the reason for that, the differences were just, they varied quite a bit by industry. I mean, on retail, it was like, well, I can't manage inventory. And like, that's pretty clutch if you're if you're a physical you know selling physical goods at a retail shop and on restaurants it was you know I need more coordination between the kitchen and the uh, the point of sale and folks that are in front of house and so you know those are different problems it was looking at looking at the data talking to customers knowing that as a company we felt that we had the ability to to add value sort of up market with larger with larger sellers but knowing that the way that that's going to come to life it's going to look look a little different than like a single a single product um and so there was a group of us you know some of which are still at square that that um that really you know sort of devised this idea of hey we should make some vertical specific solutions to go after different parts of parts of the market and and that m- many of those are still still in play today you know I've, I've been at the company for a while so I don't know the exact exact state of things but but I think it was the right move and I think it allowed us to like to serve larger customers better I think we all knew that, you know, to kind of be able to live into this premise of an all-in-one solution, um, and we all believed and still believe, I mean, I would believe this Augusto today, that there's tremendous amounts of value when you have a well-integrated set of business tools that work together on behalf of moving the business forward, powered by you know, a shared platform and, and shared UI. If you follow that through, you can't just have sort of one way that that shows up for different types of businesses because they they operate differently. And so we did have a lot of debate at the time on like kind of just the way that it would come to life. Like, is it just sort of one super app that you put in a bunch of information about yourself and then it like magically turns into this perfectly form-fitting experience for your business? You know, or as, as we ended up going with, there's actually separate apps that are a little bit more industry-specific and there's still customization that goes on within there, but sort of the initial, the customer's initial choice of saying, well, I kind of identify as a restaurant more than as a retailer, 
And as a result, I'm going to go download your Square for Restaurants product and get started on that. And then configure from there was uh, ultimately where we landed. But yeah, we debated a few, you know, a few different approaches to it. But I think we were all very convicted and looking back, I think, right to say, hey, this can't just be like a one size fits all thing anymore. Like the differences of jobs to be done across these industries are just too stark. At the time you were at Square, did you find what Toast was doing interesting? And it's a company that I haven't studied that closely, but find relatively intriguing in that it's quite large. I don't know, it's $14, $15 billion company only doing restaurants. So it's almost the difference between horizontal versus vertical product strategy. Is there anything interesting when you think about companies that are horizontal versus vertical and studying that business and building Square? I have tremendous respect for for Toast and what and what they've done. And I mean, when you look across the industry, I think you've got a lot of folks that are you know up and coming with vertical solutions, basically saying, "Hey, we think that we can serve specific parts of the industry much better if we just go all in on like." What is the end-to-end solution for Vertical X? And really focus on the the core jobs to be done there. Our premise at Square was that when you unpack that quite a bit, a lot of those jobs are shared. A lot of them are similar across industry. And so the belief was and continues to be that for building off that base foundation, you can build on top of that in a way that form fits the needs of those for those very for various industries well. And we were just selective in which ones we went after. I mean, you, you know, you kind of break down all the different types of small businesses. I mean, you could have like a square for X and there, there you know, there could be 45 of them when you look at all the different types of small businesses that are out there. But we picked ones that we thought the market was large. We thought we had a right to win um, or we thought, you know, we had in our DNA a good a good way to, to actually build build solutions that would work for them. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a constant debate on like, where sh- should we verticalize? Should we not? Where should we verticalize? How does it make sense? What should we, what should stay sort of part of our like horizontal offering versus going deep into one, into one industry? Um, and my hunch, you know, like looking forward, there's going to continue to be success in vertical, vertical SaaS. Like, I don't think that's done. I think there's lots of wins to be had by really getting specific on serving the needs of a particular, particular industry. The, the, the catch on that and like one of the, one of the tricks is just, it's very, very, very difficult to be able to build awareness and be able to acquire, at least at the bottom of the market, be able to acquire at an affordable CAC if you don't have really great brand awareness, which comes from having a horizontal presence like Square when you're on, you know, the countertop of every every shop you buy coffee at. Um, that helps that, that helps really like get the brand name out there and helps things like product-led growth actually work. And so it can that can be harder. You know, if you're going after particularly an industry, we're not going to have a whole lot of visibility for the customer sort of naturally just making like the unit economics of the whole business work. In sort of the point that you were making about in what ways do you want to verticalize and in what ways do you want to sort of invest in some sort of common platform or operating system? When you think about that in the context of Gusto, when you think about it in the context of Square, were those decisions made by product taste and intuition or, or did you develop like a structured way to decide on those types of things? Coming back to Gusto, I mean, I think what, one of the things that we really benefit from is that our thesis of helping folks with starting, growing and running teams is those jobs, I think, just inherently are much more shared across industries. So if you break down our customer set and we have north of 300,000 small businesses on Gusto now and you look at them. 
sort of by traditional industry segmentation, it's very evenly distributed across a lot of industries. And I think we, the reason for that is some of those uh, jobs that we've done for starting growing and running teams are, are very shared. So benefits administration, being able to hire off board, employee handbooks, payroll, the paying hourly workers, so on and so forth. There's nuance and we and we try to, you know, try to build into that nuance so that it form fits various industries in the right way. But But a lot of it is shared. If you juxtapose that with Square, Square is trying to do much more. I mean, that's one part of sort of the SMB stack, and they're trying to do that and sort of all, all other parts of it. And I think in parts of the sort of the SMB stack, if you will, there's just more more like vertical nuance that shows up faster. You know, coming back to, to your question, I mean, I think it just was kind of apparent that for the number of ways that we were trying to serve small businesses at Square, there was just really going to be no way to do that without doing some some vertical specific work. And that that showed up, I think, a little bit earlier. That might show up at Gusto too at some point in a stronger way. But at Square, it showed up a little bit earlier because the front of house tools and the payment tools just needed to be a bit more form fit. So many companies start with the idea of we're going to start with a sharp wedge and then build out from there and often struggle to do that. And oftentimes what happens is the wedge is their one thing. They're kind of like a one trick pony. How did you approach in both sort of in the context of Square and what you've seen at Gusto? Obviously, you joined it at the company in a, a different chapter. What does that look like to do that well? Like you have a wedge. In the case of Gusto, it was very clearly payroll. The company was called that at the time. Square was very clearly, hey, you want to accept credit cards? Use this thing. Connect to your phone. What does it look like to start to figure out where you go from there? And in both cases, you could do 40 different things next. You could launch different products in different ways. Part of it comes back, again, just to the market and to the industry. I think both the benefit and the pain of serving small businesses is that there's just, <laughs> there's so many, pl- I mean, it's, we're catching up a little bit now, but like over the last decade, I mean, there's just so many places where like they're they're living in a technology, either technology free or inadequate technology to help run the business. So the amount of adjacencies, as you started to sort of understand the customer better and look at how they're going about doing their jobs, it was overwhelming. I mean, you would go interview these customers that are using our, our point of sale or just using us to take credit cards. You start asking them about other parts of the business. You're just like, what you're doing, what? You know, and put my technology hat on. I'm like, boy, I, I could think of a way to do that better, you know? And so um, there's never been, I think, at both places, any shortage of ideas on how to expand out from the from the wedge, as you said. And this is where you know some of the product taste and just like good strategy comes in. Is like, okay, if we're going to expand off the wedge, how does the wedge product, whatever the first one is, really help unlock the door to the second? What are what are the sort of unique insight, unique advantage? or right to win, does the first product open up for the second? And so, as you mentioned, I mean, I'm, I'm joining Gusto at a little bit of a later chapter, but like one of the products I point to there that the company should be really proud of is benefits. And benefits is clearly a pain point for small businesses, is now, will be for quite some time. The ability to be able to offer employees benefits and have that be super integrated with payroll so the deductions are right, the employee data is right, you do a life event, you move to another state or something like that happens that it just very seamlessly like integrates across the two. Serve Gusto really well to be able to say, okay, we've got like advantage by being the payroll provider. You know, we know the employee, we ha- we are the employee system of record. We have data, all the, the, the source of truth on employee data. It's very easy then to say, all right, what, what, how else can we serve employees with that? And and so benefits was like a very natural ne- next step. And that, and that product's doing phenomenally well. I think taking, taking advantage of that, of that insight. 
was there anything else interesting about going from mono wedge product to multi-product at Square that others might find useful to know? Just looking at how the first product sets you up for success with the second in a way that if you built the second without the first, you can see there's like a meaningful difference in, in your ability to approach and execute the second product work working off the first. And a lot of that, I mean, to be quite honest, a, a big part is just that you already have the customer in the building. You can reach them. You don't have to go out and sort of like win them out of the market. They have a relationship with you. So you already have an advantage in the sense that you can talk to the customer, reach them through email, or if it's, a, you know, if you have a smaller customer base, pick up the phone, you know, depending on what the kind of what the business is. But being able to leverage data or have something that's just like a very natural adjacency that makes sense to do the second while you're doing the first has been something that's really worked well for both for both companies. One of my favorite products, and I didn't work on this at Square, but one of my favorite ones that was just coming up was, was Square Capital. That started all the unique insight that like, hey, we kind of have a pretty good view into the revenue of a business. We don't have a full view on the business. But we have a unique view on the revenue coming into a bit into a business. And so that really puts us into a position to be able to lend in a way that like, uh, you know, banks, small business lending division doesn't have that same level of insight. And so being able to use that data to do that super well, we knew that was a pain point just talking to customers. We knew cash flow was a problem. And that's that's no secret with small businesses. But, you know, to me, that was that was has been a, a great example of like uh, leveraging the data, the unique insight to do a second product that without that payment data, I mean, it would have been the same as like any off the, off the street, you know, lending product, but there was the uniqueness of the data and the insight there that, that kind of led to success on that product. What about now in the context of Gusto, for example, where you have many products, it's not just going from one to two. How do you start to make those decisions? So for example, should we create software that helps people manage hourly worker shifts versus the seven other jobs to be done that you hear from customers. Have you developed an approach to figure out those type of decisions that feel slightly different than maybe even your second or third product? You know, the Gusto product suites is growing considerably. It's a multi-product ecosystem and spans a lot of different a lot of different areas. I mean, we've got products. Most of our product suite is focused on helping employers. Um, we also have products to help accountants. We have products to help employees. So members, uh, we call them. We're trying to add value in, in many different arenas at this point. And so when we you know, we use a few frameworks, some of them, some of them novel, some of them things that I'm sure other companies use. But a big one is we talk a lot about horizons and we talk a lot about, you know, how much are we investing sort of in the core versus investing in, in bold bets and things that might, you know, might be either something we realize success on multiple years out or is a bigger risk we might never realize success on, so on and so forth. And so we try to think about where we're laying chips, always continuing to add depth into, you know, what we're already doing. But then also like on horizon three type things, like making sure we have some effort spent on things that might, you know, be new things that, that come to life for us. Um, and to be honest with you, Brett, there's no science on that. I mean, a lot of it's a lot of it's art, you know, you kind of come up with a, a framework for how you want to approach investing across horizons. And you look at where the state of the business and the state of the product today and for the things you already have in market, kind of how it's resonating with customers, how it's growing, so on and so forth. And just try to make some intelligent allocation on like investing in current things versus versus starting new things. It's very true. Gusto and, and, and I'm sure Square probably feels the same, was that there's just no shortage of, of need and no shortage of adjacencies. To me, one of the best things about working in the small business arena is just there's so many areas that we can help 
um, that I'm sure if we put effort into would work because the customer pain is there and the market's there. It's just kind of deciding how many to take on at once and like the handling depth versus breadth. Can you explain that in a little bit more detail and in, in sort of how you use Horizons or like how you would explain to someone the way that you think about resource allocation in terms of investing in the core, enhancing the core? taking on new high conviction bets, high risk bets, sort of those types of things. Yeah. So we're, we're right now, we're like in the first cycle of my time at Gusto of going through um, annual planning and working through um, what we're going to be doing over the next year. Annual planning for us is a little bit offset. We follow like the more or less the tax year calendar. So our fiscal year ends, ends in April. I, one thing I really like about our approach at Gusto is we keep we keep a rolling three-year vision of where we want to go. And so we're working through that right now, like stepping back from just next year, what does the next three years look like? And what does the customer deserve? And what where are we versus where we think we should be for the customer? And we use that as an opportunity to kind of think big it's constrained in the sense that it's three years away. So that's not 10 years. I mean, there is some constraint on that. We try not to get too nitpicky about like, well, how are we going to resource that? And all the questions that inevitably will come up when we talk about a shorter time frame. But we want to think, you know, think bigger in that timeline. And in doing that, you know, that allowed, that kind of gives us the space to both go, like, what would it look like to go deep? What would it look like to go wide? And a lot of new concepts and thought and thinking comes out of that, of that process. So we're in it right now, which has been super fun for me because, um, you know, all these ideas sort of come up throughout the year and we have discussions on them, of course, but this is a nice time to like get, get all that thinking out on the table and start to parse through it and think about where we want to go. Inevitably, when we try to, you know, round back up to what that three-year vision is going to look like, we have to make some trade-offs, you know, and a lot of those are based off judgment. A lot of them are based off of, you know, how the business is performing, um, where the most acute customer pain is. And ultimately, we try to get to a narrative on what where the business will head in terms of helping customers that gives us a bit of a North Star for like how the next three years will look. And this process isn't isn't totally unique, you know, but I, we didn't do much of that at Square. A lot of it was kind of focused on what does the next year look like? Open Door, where I was for a brief time between Square and Gusto, I thought did an excellent job of keeping that. They, they did it on a five-year window, but keeping like a vision of where we were headed over a five-year timeline and always refreshing that year over year. Eric Wu, who was uh, CEO at the time, uh, was exceptional at this and making sure that we were always kind of knew where the five-year view was so it couldn't come back and inform the next year. Can you give an example, maybe in the context of Open Door, like what what you thought a compelling five-year vision was, like something that makes it more clear, like what is the altitude that you think is productive when you're talking about a five-year vision or in the case of Gusto, a three-year vision? A lot of it allows you the opportunity to bring a lot of beliefs on where the world's going to go like into, into the conversation and be able to see how that belief might play out. So like a central thesis at, at Open Door, for example, was that over time, the consumer will demand a more an easiest and more seamless way to move that rejects this notion that like it's got to take two months, you got to get these agents involved, you got to lose 8% of the value of your home every single time you want to like transact. And that consumers ultimately will want to get into more of an e-commerce type level of home shopping experience, where of course they still have the right to go in and tour the home and everything like that. They don't need to be handheld by agents that are more or less skimming out of the middle of a, of a transaction. And so following off that line of thinking, it was sort of like, all right, over the next five years, like how is that going to play out? And if we're doing that on the sell side of the equation, what how is that same thesis work on the buy side? And how might those two things sort of come, come together and do a full 
you know, sort of real estate ecosystem. And so it allowed us to kind of say like, okay, here are some of the key insights or key thesis that we have about how the world is going to evolve and how what the consumer expects is going to evolve. And then how do we want to show up in terms of how we live into that unconstrained by like, you know, the day-to-day, all right, how many people do we have on this team? And like, oh, these dependencies and yada, yada. And so it's it's similar at Gusto. I mean, I think the problem space is wider. So we're, we're looking at and forming hypotheses on how the world will change and how we should evolve with it to serve consumers over a little bit of a shorter time window and building out a narrative around that that starts to address some things on, on the horizon framework that I gave you. I'm like, you know, we need to go deeper in these areas uh, because we have the central belief and this and this is why, but also has a little bit of, of measurement on it on like how much are we going to go horizon one, horizon two, horizon three, um, and there's some rationale behind it. You can think about it as like a horizon one um, effort would be something that's, you know, usually working on an existing product or an existing uh, offering that we have that uh, we believe the work will materialize, will realize value in a, in a shorter time frame. Um, typically, it's adding depth into something that's already existing um, and continuing to make it better as we learn about the customer. Not overcomplicated, but there are like even horizons within a product. So you look, you look at something like payroll, for example. Our payroll product is our is the backbone of Gusto. There's a lot of things we're going to do that adds into what we already have. That is high rate of success. We have high conviction on. We know the customer pain. We know how to solve it. Then there's some things that we're going to do within, you know, a a core product that is going to be sort of horizon three work where we're taking some bets. We're going to try some new things, higher risk, maybe higher return. And we want to make the space to be able to do that within that specific product. So we're kind of looking at bigger bets versus safer, but largely high rate of success problems and looking at that spectrum for each individual product and then for the portfolio as a whole. And between those two sort of going deep and going wide perspectives, uh, we start to net out with with a, a point of view on, on on where we're headed. You were talking about the idea of, of Horizon 3 bets. And I'm curious when you think about higher risk, higher reward, more ambiguous product building, how do you think about assessing whether that is being done or was done well and the progress you're making against it? Given that you may have high quality inputs and the experiment was run well, but the experiment proved that there is no opportunity here. It feels like managing that type of product work is different than Horizon 1 core execution. Yeah, I mean, the Horizon 3 work and like starting new things when you're at and trying you know, experimenting a new against new jobs to be done is, you know, again, there's no there's no off the shelf playbook. So I can give you a couple examples of things that I think have worked and like things that we that we try at Gusto. So one of the products I led at, at Square was Square Invoices. And Square Invoices grew to be our second biggest. I'm not sure where it is now or if they disclose all this, but it grew to be at the point of the IPO, I think it was our second biggest payment product. And that product started, it wasn't like a bunch of smart people got in a room and like figured out the three year vision and one of the parts of it was an invoicing product there was a group of uh, i think it was just a couple engineers that were like we got this payment platform and and we know how to build you know websites what if we just let people send an invoice and then type in their credit card you know and they did that as a hack week project and we we're like well that's cool like why don't we try to you know just ship that so we'll just see we'll just put it in the in the left rail of the navigation and see what happens and and oh wow hey does anyone check the the dashboard there's an insane amount of money that's been moved through this thing i'm sure the folk that worked on that 
you know, had a thesis on this, but to see it play out when you looked at Square, kind of looking now, looking backwards, it was, it just made so much sense. It was like, we were predominantly service businesses. We have, despite the branding on coffee shops and retail, so many of those service businesses don't take payment at the point of service. And so they're, they're doing this in the background and this just kind of gave them an easier way to do it. You know, they're already using us for like in-person payments, but like now we're, now we're kind of into billing and like async payments. And, And then we're like, well, we should put a team on this. Right. And then so it started, I think I was the second product manager, but there, when I took over the team, there were I think two engineers, myself and like a designer that was helping us off the side of their desk or whatever. And over the course of years, I mean, that business grew, I mean, tremendously. It was, I think we did a couple billion dollars in GPV and, and, and uh, payment volume inside of like two years. The team grew around up to around 30 when I when I finally handed that off to somebody else. And that had gone into tons of adjacencies, billing, recurring payments. I think they're doing bill pay now. Tons of stuff. They just sort of all anchored off that one initial thing. So like that turned into, I don't know, what do you call it? Wait, would you call it Horizon 3? I mean, kind of, you know, off the bat, but it was really just making space for smart folks across the company to try some stuff and then having the right mechanism set up to like put that in market and just see what see what happens. And so I think that's one thing like for Horizon 3 things is just um, a lot of it comes bottoms up. So most of it comes bottoms up and like making the space for that to happen then shows up in like an annual planning process where you're like, oh yeah, you know that one thing that we tested that seems to be doing quite well, like maybe we double down on that. If you want to encourage that, other than sort of like traditional hack weeks and stuff like that, is there anything you do in terms of inculcating that in the culture that increases the chance you're going to have the next couple engineers work on this little idea over the weekend that could blossom into a really wonderful business. Is there anything else you would do institutionally or system-wide? Setting the culture right so that there is a freedom to try stuff and like know that not everything's going to work. So as long as you can be upfront on like, hey, we're, we're going to try this thing. It's a, it's a bit of a bet. Here are the risks. You know, this is what we what we're thinking up front, but not sort of penalizing failure on stuff like that, but especially if it's like well articulated up front. That that needs to be there. You know, I've been I've been in some situations where folks feel performance review or for their career growth, if they're not part of the winning team, that that's gonna hold them back. And despite I think what every company tries to do to counter that, that does show up a little bit from time to time. And so hammering that kind of attitude out of the culture is key. Just making sure it's clear that like we have room for risk taking we reward it you're not going to be penalized if everything doesn't work i think that's point one point two would just be ensuring that the space is created for that kind of stuff to to do it safely and this is a benefit that i think you get you know when you're kind of getting at the scale that when you're starting product two or product three is that you know at square when we did this it was pretty easy and we had the tooling that allowed us to be like we're not sure about this we're going to put it in front of five percent you know of customers that we think fit the icp of what who might find value from something like this and just kind of see it's ensuring that you have the infrastructure and tools set up to test some of this stuff safely. And if it does go south or there is a problem, I mean, shit, we could have had a whole bunch of, you know, there's a, as the product blossomed, there were risk issues left and right. I mean, there was credit fraud, the criminal fraud, like a lot of things that we slowly like figured out and fixed, but let's say those things happened right away. You know, we, we'd have the ability to sort of shut it down. And obviously there's a little bit of exposure, but no harm, no foul. Um, so you, you kind of, need some controls around that, that you're managing, managing the risk of like a dud or some unintended consequences that's going to get you in a core room you don't want to be in. So making sure those controls are there. How do you create a culture that is comfortable with risk taking? I'm curious if you could talk about it in, in any more detail. 
I think it's one of those things, you know, when you talk to people running software businesses, I think it's a common thing that people talk about in practice in companies where employees have all sorts of different incentives. It's actually hard to do. And right, if you think about like the decision tree of someone doing something new or something where there's more risk, one outcome is they take this thing on and it's wildly successful and it's like a career making new business line. So that's great. That's very clear. But in all the other cases, when things don't work, it's easy to conflate somebody who runs the experiment well and the experiment fails and someone who doesn't run the experiment well and it fails. Or how many up at bats would you be willing to give someone before you would say their instincts and judgment is actually wrong? It's not just uh, the experiment didn't work. And it's all of that that I think operationalizing becomes very difficult. And I think it's obviously easier to say we want to be risk taking the future. You know, we have to be innovative if we effectively want to grow TAM forever, which is the goal of an ambitious software business. But the details always, I think, tend to get in the way. And in some ways, if somebody's the most career oriented, maybe they go make the core two percent better every year. And that's going to be the best way for them to grow. And maybe that's fine. Maybe somebody with that personality should just focus on that. But is there anything else you've you found or figured out over the last decade in sort of this theme that we're talking about? Yeah, we, we talked about the Hack Week example as a source of innovation. There are, you know, there are, we have a few at Gusto right now, but there there are teams, you know, that it's nice to kind of spin up and be like, look, we're going to try this for a little while. You know, or you kind of have free reign in this space to try some things. We believe that you're shooting at a real problem. So we buy the problem articulation. And a lot of times, if you find a leader that can convince you on the problem, that's where my a lot of my like, okay, I, I trust the, intui- the intuition on this because I can they can re- reasonably articulate to me why they believe we might not know the solve yet, but like why this is worth charging at. And if the logic checks out and I buy the intuition behind it as well as like how they weave together the story, that kind of checks that that can help check the judgment box for me to be like, yeah, let's have at it for a while. So carving out teams and giving them sort of the space to to attack and knowing that going in, like this is a unknown area. We may or may not find success. And you trying to set the expectation up front that like if we don't find success, we need to just be able to have an intellectually honest conversation. At some point, we can have a rough sense of when that might be where we're like, okay, we might not be here with this one, try to find something else. I mean, there's different there's different ways in which you can like invite risk taking to take place and knowing that it's got got some controls behind it to, to have it not go not go haywire. If you have an up and coming PM and they have an idea for a new bet, they came across a new problem that they think the company should take on and you were coaching them on how to go work on this and get the company to allow you to go work on it. What would you tell them to go do? What memo or deck or work would you tell them, maybe in the context of Gusto, maybe it was at Square, somebody came across something and they wanted your advice on how to get it out in the world. What are some mm-hmm. of the pieces of advice you would give that type of person? One operating principle we had at Square is it was start small. Like what is something, what are some things that you can do that would help us kind of validate that this is a worthy problem to to go solve and what would be like a small start that would help actually put something in market to see we have a sense of how we might be able to to, to solve it so i mean you can go through all the classical customer discovery you know marty kagan silicon valley product group level 
um, approaches on things. And those are important to do. I, th- I would call that kind of foundational on like understanding the customer problem really well, doing customer discovery, coming up with what we think uh, that solution might be, trying to validate that through prototypes. Like all of that will help save us an, an immense amount of time. But if I buy what you're saying and and we can and and you buy it and we're continuously getting good feedback on it like a lot of what you know we want to try to do is figure out how do we put something out that allows us to validate like that this is actually going to work and gets at the heart of the thesis behind the idea and see that played back through the market and do it kind of like as a feature it's not like we have to necessarily spin up this whole new team and this big decorated thing that's like you know um make a big deal out of it but like kind of on the invoicing example like is is there a is there a start small that we can put in market and see if some of your central central hypotheses can can be validated with that and you have to put an intense amount of focus on that on that little small thing to make sure that there's something there um we did a lot of this at open door uh we do a lot of it at gusto but it's the kind of thing where it requires just like outside attention like outsized attention you're spending a lot of time looking at does the little nugget that we're trying to put out work and if so why what's happening with it talking to the customers etc etc you know put a little bit more focus there and and hopefully eventually over time it, it turns into something real but you have to make make space for some of that and and the hard thing is just how many and how much and when do you do that the hard the hardest part to me is when the idea is like really far from what we're already working on. You're like, well, that's a good idea, but it doesn't necessarily jive super well with the direction we're on right now. And how do you how do you bridge that gap? Oftentimes it's harder to get things over the line where you're like, all right, I can kind of see it, but it's it's not in line with anything like we're doing right now. And a lot of those unfortunately tend to not happen or need more like executive level support to get off the ground versus like being able to just go try something and start small and see if you know we get any good signal back. So do you think when you think about all of the folks in the orgs that you've worked at that have come to you with new product ideas or new jobs to be done and you leave the time with them feeling like it shouldn't be pursued is it oftentimes poor problem definition or did they not chunk it down into that small sort of starting point or are there other things like if you were to just bucket all the people that have spent time where they didn't do this well is there a a predominant fail case outside of after they run the experiment and build the product I'm talking about sort of the before part of the process. One is that the problem in the pitch is meaningfully away from the current direction that we're focused on. And so it's like, I can see that, but it's not in line with like how we, the vision that we're trying to execute on right now. Those problems are harder to be like, yeah, let's go do that and like change the plan and divert people to that versus what we've already, you know, already, already taken on. That'd be one where it's harder. And then the second is when there just hasn't been a very critical look at like what the start small is. Let's say it's in the vein of what we're working on. I would like to hear a narrative about how with like a couple people, you know, having seen massive success with a couple people doing doing cool things, like how can you take a few people and try that. Like if you have high conviction in it, you know, particularly if you're a leader here, if you're a product manager running a team, engineering leader running a team, designer running a team, you are also at your in, within your team allocating kind of who's going to work on what and working with the team to that the team's inspired by it. And you can still keep the direction of the team going against what 
their you know sort of objectives and strategy are for the year and you can go try this this side idea those tend to work because you're like great i'm gonna i'm gonna try this i'm gonna show that it's working and then if you need more team to basically fund it and put some put some put some more wood under the fire on it then we can have that conversation we're doing it now with the validation of customers have tried it and we see we seem to think that there's value in it do you think almost all horizon three type opportunities can be chunked down in that way or is there a subset that it's like, it's a massive bet, there's no way to chunk this thing down, and we're willing to take on X number of those every X number of years? You know, when I think about some of the Horizon 3 things that we're discussing right now, Augusto, and when I think about what they might look like three years from now, they are materially different than what Gusto looks like today. So that's exciting and something that's invigorating to want to go do. But when I think about the first step to try to step into that, a lot of these hypotheses have to be like articulated, validated, then re-articulated, validated, then re-articulated and validated. So when I think about the first step, it's not that far from where we are today to start on the path to something that could be really big in a Horizon 3. That's usually where sort of the start would be. And if there's a big fail on step one, then we might have to look at, okay, do we still believe in step four? So I'll give you like a hypothetical without like without going through too much of, of inside baseball at Gusto. But let's say hypothetically, we wanted to get into email marketing. And that was like a big thing for us. I would expect if that was like a big Horizon 3 bet, that we would have some kind of starter effort on that, that we are going to do next next fiscal year, that we could fund a team on or, or fund an existing team to take on part of, to try some basics around the around what it would mean for Gusto customers to be able to like reach their their customers in a better way and put what we think maybe our best first hypothesis would be on that in front of them and see if that takes at all. And if that were to take, then that might open up the realm for us to get more into sort of marketing solutions, hypothetically, for for our customers. But if that first swing doesn't work, then we kind of have to work look at like, okay, does that is that whole arc that we're trying to get at with Horizon this this Horizon 3 or is that whole arc in question because we can't actually get stuff Step one to take. When you look at it over a three-year view, you're like, okay, that's a Horizon 3 thing. But then when you break it down into what we're going to do in the next year, it's oftentimes a reasonable adjacency that is the first step towards that. And we can kind of validate if that that works or not. Do you think sort of product taste and intuition is something that is like a learnable skill or a muscle that can be exercised and, and, and improved over time? Or at a certain point, does somebody just have that type of sensibility and other people don't? No, no right answer. I do really value what I would call good judgment. And, and good judgment is something that is best screened for at the point of interview. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean like this somebody is an expert in all things product and they've used a million products and they can articulate, you know, use a lot of like product vernacular to, to articulate things, but has reason, you know, can structure problems in a clean way, has reasonable ways that they would sort of break down how they would go about solving or getting to a conclusion on something ambiguous. These are some of the things that I want to see in like somebody that's trying to take up the product management role in particular. A characteristic we're looking for is somebody who's curious and like somebody who ideally they have gone out and like played with a whole bunch of products and like can bring in examples of how product X did something well or product Y did something well, even if it's not in the same domain that helps know like, okay, the curiosity sort of vein is there and you, and you pair that with good judgment and they seemingly are 
you know, excited about just the product arena in general, like those kind of conditions lead, I think, to success with product managers. So yeah, I mean, I think it can be developed, but like we certainly want to see folks that are coming into that role at Gusto being able to showcase that they have some of it off the bat. We look at past work, we put hypotheticals in front of folks, we throw tough questions that don't have perfect answers, gauging on strategy in front of folks to see if they can break down like, well, these are the main components of that question. Or to answer that question, this is how I would break it down. I might not have hard answers for you, but like, this is the approach that I would use to get to an answer. And if I made these assumptions, this would be the position that I would land at. I think what one thing that I'm looking for, and I hope that our interview process is screening for on the judgment question is also just this sense of like being able to have an opinion. The reality is that this work involves, you know, making decisions without perfect information. And one of the pitfalls I find in, in some product leaders are they have a really hard time getting to a decision because they want perfect information and their proxy on what enough information is, is too high versus what I think somebody could have made a pretty good judgment decision on without getting more info. And so you see this sort of like manifest when folks like constantly want to run research projects or they want to do a whole bunch of A-B tests before we make decisions on something that is relatively low impact if they get it wrong. Somebody with good judgment, seven times out of 10, will probably pick up on the right answer with, with less data. So these are the kind of things like we try to, I don't know, not say we do a perfect job, but the kind of things we try to like sess out in the interview process to, to see if that's the kind of person that we're, that we're bringing in the door. If you think about all the people you've worked with and or hired and you create one bucket of people who have exceptional product taste or intuition and people who are weaker. What's your best guess at what was going on for the people that have exceptional product taste? The first things that came to mind, Brett, were like somebody who is empathetic and curious can put their can put themselves in the shoes of whoever and ask good questions. You know, try to get to the root of what's going on, first principle thinking, asks a lot of whys, and like genuinely wants to know about that. I think one one thing is, you know, in the beginning I talked about just like being lucky to serve small businesses because I like I, I truly care about their success. I want somebody that truly care like really wants to work for the customer, you know, because if they don't really give a shit about the customer and it's just like, well, this company is going to IPO soon, I'm going to make a bunch of money, bad fit, because you need to have a real hunger to like get to the bottom of what the hell's going on so you can build good product for it. So empathy and curiosity, I think are, are key to it. And then the second one is kind of what we just said. I don't know how this stuff develops. It's innate or if it just happens from, from something, but like having an opinion, you know, being able to, to say it and being able to know when it's weekly held. I think the product people that I see struggle the most are the ones that just like can't really make their like, well, here's all the options. And I'm like, well, it's your job to tell us what we're going to do. So <laughs> what are we going to do? You know, and and so I don't know how that forms, you know, but that that's what we want. There was this wonderful interview that a friend of mine shared a couple of weeks ago, and it was a long form essay with Tom Ford, who's this sort of prolific designer. And he said that sort of his greatest skill was he could sit down and look at five pair of shoes sitting in front of him that his team put in front of him. And he could point at the one that would sell 100x more than all the other shoes that would that would be resonant with their customer base. Do you think that, that there's something to that when you think about just exceptional product people, that there is sort of this ability to sort of identify opportunities in a similar way? Or is it more of the scientific method? You know, 10 years ago, I would have said more of the scientific method. I'm getting more in the camp of like some people just have a, a good innate grasp on the wants and needs of customers and, and and not just customers, just people in their life and can read, you know, read the room well, 
and react well with solutions. And, you know, it's really hard to find those folks, but boy, those are the folks you want, you know? I mean, there's there's definitely ways to de-risk. Like I truly buy into all of the classical product management thinking that there's tons of articles out there for de-risking product bets. And and we coach all that and we use those mechanisms and they, they're certainly helpful. But it's kind of like, where's the Y intercept on it? You know, like those are, that you take someone who innately just has good judgment and good good gut feel for things. And I think that can get better with time. It's not like where you start when you're 22 is the same way you're going to end when you're whatever. But you start that and then you apply really good practices on top of it. You might take someone from, I'm just making this up, but like they're at 50%, you know, that might bump them up 15 points, you know, to 65. But if you take someone who's at like a 30 or 20 and who doesn't really seem to grasp the customer well and be able to do what you just said and you put the best process on top of it like i still think you're going to maybe net 15 points up this is kind of a new new thinking for me but i think as i've kind of aged a bit but been around a little more i put a little bit more stock in like you know people that have just that innate sense it sounds almost like like athletic ability like if you look at the best athletes there's some innate athletic ability and then you can layer on training and all the precise things to amplify their ability. But if they're not a core level of athleticism, you can be a good athlete, but it's tough to be a top sort of fraction of 1%. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a runner. I'm trying to get better. I'm never going to win a race. Like I know that, <laughs> but I could be, I could be a couple points higher than I am now, but there's, I have a limit because that's just how I was built. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm older. <laughs> Um, last couple of things. One thing we didn't talk about was pace of execution. Do you have any thoughts on how to move more quickly as a product team? I forget what book this was in, but it might have been the um, high output management. But there's this concept of you're working on the output of the factory, and then you're also looking at the factory itself. And I think that a lot of times healthy teams have a good balance of the two where they're they're looking at the factory itself in the sense of retroing like how did that project go where did we where did we slow down why were we slow in those parts what could we be doing to do that better and so having this culture of kind of looking back on things even things that you would call successful and sort of figuring out how do we nip and tuck how we work together and how we get get things done help sort of like tend, tend and build the factory like there's no there's no perfect way to do this quickly but examining speed of decision-making. Did we get, you know, did we run too many A-B tests? Could we have made that call earlier? Did we really need that customer research? How could we have gotten, I mean, this is this is very common in multiple products, sort of like platform companies. It's just my team does this, but I got to get these three other teams to do that in order for this product to go. Like I need platform team X to build functionality Y so I can, I can build this thing. That trips us up a lot. And so looking back at how could we have gotten alignment sooner? If there was an alignment, could we have unblocked ourselves? Could the team that actually needs the functionality the platform team has to build just go in and build it? If not, why? Like, is it because of skill set? Is it because we have some rules? If the rules are there, like, could we change them? And so just kind of getting this constant self-evaluation process on like how that how things could have gone better. I, we have work to do on this at Gusto and certainly had work to do on this at Square. But in some cases, I think it might even just be good to ask that exact question. I'm like, not only how could it have gone better, but like, how could it have gone faster? It's not even so much about what are we doing for the customer better or different. And that's an interesting look because, you know, I don't know if that tactic works. I don't think we spend enough time and I don't think companies in general spend enough time during the strategic process of analyzing the how they're working. What about if you think about all the teams that you've worked with? Not 
the companies, but each team, each product team or functional team or whatnot. And you would look at the top three most productive, fast moving, fast shipping versus those at the bottom three teams. Like, could you articulate what was going on on those unbelievably productive teams? Some of it is just sort of where the stage of the product or the company or, or whatever. I think the ones that have, I've seen move the fastest are, one, they're clear on why they exist and what they're trying to get done. Two, they're clear on what they're trying to build. You know, there might be some nips and tucks on, you know, where's the button placed and whatever, but like, mostly they're like, this is why this thing needs to exist. We all believe in it. We can see what it needs to be. Um, so there's a lot of clarity on purpose and, and where we're going. Three, they have the right people on the team. A lot of times it, there are just skills issues or like there's team issues that hurt productivity so that right people on the team. And then fourth, they are largely in control of their own destiny. They don't need to rely on others to help get done whatever they need to do. They're fairly, fairly self-contained. And then five, and this is where, you know, I think that um, it does depend a little bit on like stage of product or what kind of company you're in, but like they're willing to use off the shelf things, not reinvent the wheel, whatever they need to do in order to like move, move faster. And they're they're applying their unique skill set on unique, adding unique value and not trying to reinvent stuff that's kind of already been done. So, you know, off the cuff, those would be the things that I, if I look back at things that I think have, you know, teams have moved exceptionally fast. Those are many of the characteristics that are in play. Just want to wrap up where we always do, which is when you think about sort of product building, product orgs, all the stuff we've talked about, is there someone in your career that's kind of most imprinted themselves on you? I think the two people that have had the most impact on me are Gokul Rajaram and Alyssa Henry, mm -hmm. both at Square. Gokul was leading product and engineering when I first got there. Gokul was extremely focused on speed and moving quickly. We were spinning up most of Square's product suite. He started in 2013. When I came there, it was basically like exactly how you described it. Like, we've got this wedge product. Great. We're going to build this business operating system on top of this wedge product. Payroll launch, customer engagement launch, appointments launch, invoices launch, all these things. Just like bam, 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 bam. He had such a drive and sense of urgency to him. He was so humble and like kind. And he's been a mentor to me in my, my whole career. And like, I, I just like, I love that guy. He's a beautiful human. And he he's and so the teams felt supported, but like moving quick. I feel like Gogol has just an incredible what I would define as followership. People that have interacted with him are like lifelong advocates. Is there anything else you can share about like what's going on with that human that you think has led to such followership over the past 20 years? I think he puts a lot of trust in people. I think he asks good questions, but ultimately he'll leave a lot of the decision-making to you. I think he genuinely cares about people under him. You know, he cared about me and my role, but also just like how, how I was doing. He's just like one of those guys in the Valley that's like a hub. There's he has so many people that he supports in one way or another or has throughout his time. And like over time that, that accumulates and you start getting, you know, kind of the perception that you, that you just said, and he's just wicked smart. He's got a good read on things like that. I mean, he can just rattle off very quickly. You know, here are the two, three things that I think are key to whatever this topic is that you're bringing up. I'm a fan of his as well, but w why did you mention Alyssa? So Alyssa, she was the, the number one person that I really saw figure out how to scale. She really, you know, whereas Gokul was just move fast, get new things out, new products. Alyssa was like, how's this all going to work together? The infrastructure needs to be there. We need to think about the platform. What are the primitives that live underneath these products that have to like work together so that we show up as one ecosystem? Really drilling in like, 
the value proposition sounds easy, but it's hard. And the value proposition is, this is all in one. It works seamlessly. It saves time. To do that, there's a lot of things that have to happen under the hood to actually realize that. So to give you an example, when Alyssa came into Square, I think we had 13 or 14 different instances of a shopping cart um, of ways that people put items into some sort of cart object and then ultimately checked out. How is that going to work? You know, you add something like a discount, right? Now you got to do it 14 times. And, and recognizing that kind of stuff that allowed Square to move super fast in the early days, but like will not allow it to get to the next stage. She was so in tune with those things that needed to be touched up and invested to get those things touched up and where they needed to be. And I think that fueled a lot of Square's up market move and a lot of like sort of the, I don't know what you want to call it, like the 10 to 100 chapter where clearly the company had a, a ton of product market. It was practically public by the time she got there, but just took off through a lot of those moves and just a really great organizational thinker, platform thinker, which was exactly what Square needed. So I, I just learned a ton working for her. Great place to end. Thank you so much for spending the time. Yeah, Brett, thank you for having me. This is great. I appreciate it.